day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. So we begin to really reckon with the state of our country's criminal justice system. It's increasingly clear that this just can't be a moment of protest to defund the police. We need to rethink the entire system. Now, that's a big task, and it won't happen overnight. But the cost of doing nothing is a matter of life and literal death for the lives of countless black Americans and other people of color. Doing nothing means allowing our money and our lives to be dictated by a system that we know is just not working. Today, we are exploring what's happening around criminal justice right here in Detroit. Later in the hour, we're going to hear a story from WDET's Ryan Patrick Hooper about how one artist is remembering Malice Green, a man who lost his life during one of the city's most well-known cases of police brutality back in the 1990s. But first, we turn our attention to an especially contentious topic, and that is the role of facial recognition technology in policing. That is something that is emerging all over the country and right here in Detroit. Joining us to talk about this is someone who earlier this year was wrongly arrested by Detroit police officers who used facial recognition technology to pin him to a 2018 shoplifting incident. Robert Williams, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yes. Good morning. Uh, How are you? Yes, I'm good. Uh, We're also joined by ACLU of Michigan senior staff attorney Phil Mayer, who is one of the lawyers who is working on Robert Williams' case. Uh, Phil Mayer, welcome to Detroit Today. Morning, Stephen. Good to be here. Yes. And we are also joined by Bryce Huffman, who is a reporter with Bridge Detroit, who has been following the story on Project Greenlight uh, and facial recognition technology here in Detroit. Bryce, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me, Stephen. Yes. So, Robert, I want to start with you. You were the subject of a pretty big New York Times story that was just published earlier this week. For people who did not see that story, tell us what happened to you this past January. Well, so January 9th, uh, I received a phone call from my wife who was distraught, saying that she had just heard from some people saying that they were I mean saying that they were fine with the hills please and that I needed to turn myself in I said turn myself in for what she said they wouldn't tell me she said she, she gave me she gave them my number and told them to call me and while we were talking they called so I answered and it was a guy telling me he was from the third precinct in Detroit and then I needed to turn myself in, and I asked him, why would I turn myself in? What's the, what's the charge? He says, I can't tell you that. Just know it's a serious matter and that you need to come down and turn yourself in. So I uh, I reluctantly told him, no, I'm not turning myself in. I don't have any reason to. And if you can't tell me the charges, I'm definitely not coming down there. I said, if you wanted to, if you want to, uh, if you want to arrest me, you can you can meet me at my house and bring a warrant with you. And, uh, I mean, to Marcus May, I guess, he did just that. So I, I drove home and uh, pulled into my driveway, and police 
zoomed in from uh, down the street and blocked me in my driveway and arrested me in front of my wife and children. And, you know, I'm having a hard time even imagining what your emotions were like at that at that moment. I mean, it had to be a mix of fear and anger and confusion. But but give us an idea of how you felt sitting in your driveway. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, go ahead. So I I have a I have a pretty long drive from work because I'm commuting from Rochester to Farmington Hills. And, you know, there's no, like, there's no freeway to take to get home. So I'll, I have, like, 40-minute process. And the whole time, I'm thinking it was a prank call. Like, somebody was playing on our phone or trying to, you know, joke us. So uh, on the way home, I I called my wife uh, when I got about two miles from the house and asked her if she wanted me to pick up something to eat. And that's when I knew that they were already there. And uh, they were like forcing their way in my house, and I'm, I'm like, tell them to wait outside. I'll be home in a second. So when I do pull up, and they uh, block me in, I had already been processing that I could be going to jail in a minute. So you know, regular stuff hurts racing and mind racing because I don't know what to think I've done. I, I'm uh, I. I feel like I live a pretty clean life. I don't do much. I go to work, come home. So at this point, I'm just like, I'm dizzy, right? I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, confused. Like anybody who who would anybody who would be on their way home to wait for the police that are sitting at your door. Mm. So, so Phil Mayer, we know that facial recognition technology is something police forces have been using for a long time, but I think a lot of people don't realize how flawed it is. Can you talk about the ways that we know this tech disproportionately wrongly identifies people like Robert, people of color? Uh, the story he's telling is quite harrowing, uh, but it is not. It is not all that unusual. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's uh, almost certainly right. Um, it's it's well established that uh, this technology, uh, by federal studies, have concluded this that it identifies black and brown people at, at rates of between ten and a hundred times uh, more poorly than it does uh, uh, white folks, um, and that's uh, in part because the technology was built and, and tested uh, using photos of white people. Um, and, and so the, the error rates are, are really quite high, and they become even higher when you start using something like a security surveillance uh, photo taken from above, as, as was the case for Mr. Williams. Um, so, you know, what happens is uh, all of us as Michiganders, if, if you have a driver's license or if you have a state ID, the state has put your face into its facial recognition database that it uses to run uh, uh, searches. So essentially, just by getting an ID, you uh, are a, uh, a suspect in every criminal lineup that the state conducts um, or that the DPD conducts. Um, and so they run this and they identify uh, a potential hit. Uh, and then that potential hit is forwarded to, to police who uh, are told not to treat uh, the hit as, as a basis for arrest and to use it as an investigative lead. Uh, but, you know, 
law enforcement officers are often very path dependent, as was the case in Mr. Williams' case. And, you know, the investigation that they conduct can be uh, quite laughable, which was certainly the case in Mr. Williams' situation. Uh, Bryce Huffman, you wrote this week about the way that Detroiters feel about the amount of surveillance that is going on in the city. Project Greenlight is a very big example of it, uh, but there are lots of lots of others. Give us a sense of how Detroiters feel and how they're reacting to the idea that they're being watched and that these surveillances can lead to wrongful arrests and, and other miscarriages of justice. Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed it. Detroiters feel like they're being watched instead of being seen and instead of being heard by law enforcement and by city officials. Um, you got to remember that uh, if you're a Detroiter, uh, you might have camera you know, software being used to target you but if you were to, you know, cross Mac into Gross Point, they don't have cameras up everywhere watching how they live and uh, where they shop. You know, I can I feel for people because, you know, they see all of these cameras up and they know that they are, in a sense, being seen as potential criminals as opposed to being seen as the residents who live in that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert, I, I want you to talk about. Uh, how this gets fixed. Um, what, have you heard from Detroit police about the accident, the mistake that they made here that had such an uh, effect on you? And what would they need to do for you to feel like this was fixed in some way, like this was repaired? Um, well, I haven't heard anything from them. They have nobody from the Detroit uh, Police Department has reached out to me. Um, as far as the repairing of it, I think they, I think for for right now it should be banned until they figure out how to use it. They don't. I mean, it's not being used properly. Obviously, when you um, when you just run a face match and uh, show up to somebody's door and say you're arrested. Because literally, that's exactly what happened to me. They showed up to my house, and and when he when he pulled in my driveway and he got out the car, he said, "Are you Robert Williams?" I said, "Yes." He said, "You're under arrest." Wow. So I think it, I think it should be banned personally. Mm. The way for uh, multiple reasons, like we, like we were just talking about, that the technology is flawed and the and the policing is flawed. And the whole thing is flawed. Uh, Bryce, uh, you asked the mayor yesterday about this case and about the wider surveillance that's going on in uh, in the city. What did he say in response to that? So I asked him a, a few questions about facial recognition. I what I really wanted to see him answer was, you know, does he still plan to invest in it despite cases like Roberts, despite the fact that this technology misidentifies black and brown faces in a city that is overwhelmingly black. Um, and he didn't really decide to um, stop using this tech. He, he basically defended the technology saying, um, you know, it doesn't really identify people. It just helps us come up with leads. Um, but he failed to acknowledge kind of the harm that can come 
from using this technology. He, he basically defended the city's use of it, saying um, that Robert's case comes down to bad detective work and maybe an overeager prosecutor warrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, you know, he really strongly believes the tech isn't the problem here. And uh, I, I, after hearing Robert's story, after um, learning more about facial recognition and mass surveillance, I think he's missing a big chunk of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Mayer is. Mayor Mike Duggan missing part of the story here and talk about what we know about this kind of facial recognition technology, how flawed it is, and uh, whether police departments should even be using it at this point, given given the shortcomings. Yeah, the, the mayor is definitely missing a lot about this technology. Um, the thing about facial recognition technology is that it's dangerous when it doesn't work, uh, you know, and that's what's illustrated by Mr. Williams's case and however many other countless cases there are just like his, uh, where we just haven't learned uh, that facial recognition technology was used. And, and we don't learn about that in most cases. Usually the police don't admit that they're using facial recognition technology to identify a suspect. The only reason Mr. Williams uh, found out in his case is because it, it let uh, the officers who were interrogating him after his arrest let it slip um, and, and admitted that the computer had got it wrong. Um, but most people wouldn't even find out that that's why they were initially identified by the police. But as much as this technology is dangerous when it doesn't work, it's also dangerous when it does work. Uh, like Bryce was just talking about, you know, our cameras are mostly trained on communities of color uh, and communities that are already over-policed and subject to the, the same kind of abusive and, and sloppy policing that uh, has, has caused people to be in the streets in, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, and when you combine a, a broken and racist uh, criminal legal system and policing system with a racist uh, uh, surveillance system, uh, even if the system is working, the results are just going to be a, an exacerbation of the existing pathologies in the system. Uh, and, and that's something the mayor has, has certainly never acknowledged, and it's certainly nothing he's acknowledged in Mr. Williams's case. And the attempt to just sort of blame it on, on one bad uh, cop just, just proves the, the, the problem, which is, you know, in fact, what the officers did here is what you might expect to happen when, uh, when they start relying on robo policing, mm-hmm. which is that they get a lead from the computer seems right to them. So they do just enough to confirm it. Uh, and then they, you know, upend someone's life without, uh, without really having cause. Yeah. Uh, Robert, in the New York Times story about your incident, um, you said that your boss told you, for instance, not to tell anyone else at work about this and that you were considering therapy for your daughter's um, talk about the toll that this has taken on you and your family. Um, so it, it's been a major uh, eye-opening experience for us because um, I don't want to, well, we live on, uh, uh, I guess, a quiet, uh, suburban, out-of-reach life like me see stuff on TV and say, oh, that's terrible. But it doesn't really hit 
until you know until you're all the way in it. Like um, like just the other day, my my daughter and I'm, I assume she's joking. I asked her did she miss me when she came home from her grandma's house, and she says she says no. I said what you didn't miss daddy? She said I only miss daddy when you're in jail. Oh. So I said Juju, don't play like that. She said, "Well, that's when I missed you the most when you were in jail." Like this is like this is the type of stuff I have to deal with now. And then me and my wife sit up late at night and talk about it, and we wonder whether we should seek therapy for my six-year-old now, who uh, tends to think that these are uh, these are regular, you know, this is these are jokes, and that she should uh, have this in her psyche. I don't, I don't know if she's damaged or not. And uh, with work, it was just uh, when I, I called my manager to let him know why I had called off. And he was like, he was like, that's terrible. I'm, I'm sad that happened to you, but let's keep it under wraps because we don't know how HR might take it or the perception of, you know, my uh, my character throughout the building when people hear, oh, yeah, he was arrested last week. Right? So... Yeah, we, we we tried not to talk about it at work at all. Wow. Wow. Well, Robert Williams, we really hope that uh, there is some justice in the future for you for this wrongful arrest and the unbelievable toll that it is uh, taking on you and your family. But I really do appreciate uh, you being here with us. Thank you for uh, for talking well, to us. Yes. Thank you for having me. And, yeah. uh, Pushing the story out there so people can understand what's going on. Yeah. Um. You know, I wa- I watched some of the stuff yesterday on the news myself. Like people calling, like, "Are you watching? Are you watching?" And I'm like, I'm like, all I see is deflection and uh, finger pointing to different departments, and nobody's saying how to fix it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, also, Phil Mayer, ACLU of Michigan, senior staff attorney. Thank you for being here with us. And Bryce Huffman, reporter and producer for Bridge Detroit. Always great to catch up with you. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear Ryan Patrick Hooper's report on one of the worst cases of police brutality in Detroit's history the murder of Malice Green and a new mural that is going up in Detroit to memorialize him. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thank you for joining us. One of Detroit's most high-profile police brutality cases has inspired a new piece of public art. WDET's Ryan Patrick Hooper has the story. Near the corner of Hamilton and Puritan Avenue in Highland Park, Sidney G. James is painting a 3,500-square-foot mural on the side of a former church-turned-art gallery that she owns with two other artists. You do need to clean that up, too. The new mural is so massive that it has become a spectacle in the neighborhood. 
with cars honking their horns as they pass by, and friends offering to buy James and her small crew of painters cold drinks on a hot June day. So does it feel like a sculpture? It looks, yeah, it looks okay, like Okay, good, one. good, because I didn't want to feel like it, a damn black and white photo, because that's not what I was going for. The mural yeah, is a portrait good. of Malice Green, a 35-year-old black Detroiter who became the face of police brutality around the country on November 5th, 1992. That's when he was killed by two white Detroit police officers on the city's west side. At the scene, Malice Green's blood still runs in the street at West Warren and 23rd on the city's southwest side. It was there that at 10.30 last night, he was beaten to death, according to witnesses, by two white police officers of the 3rd Precinct's so-called booster squad. Those officers have been identified as... Officers Walter Budzen and Larry Nevers were in plain clothes and driving an unmarked car when they approached Green under the suspicion that he was buying drugs. At one point during their interaction, Green grabbed something off the floor of his car. The officers asked him to open his hand. When he refused, they began beating him in the head with their heavy steel flashlights. Archival footage from WXYZ-TV captured witnesses on the scene describing what happened. Just minutes after Green stopped to talk to this man from his car, and officers Butson and Nevers, known as Starsky and Hutch, rolled up. I don't know what it did then. He had his hand balled up, and they said, what you got in your hand? And then they went to beat him. That man, that's, did they drag him out of the car? No, they beat him in the car. They beat him in the car. Then the other one went on the other side, opened the driver's side door, and man, they, they, they beat him down like a dog. Did, did he do anything at all? Did he no. Both of them? No. No. Other than not open his hand, they beat his knuckles first, man. This stuff first. Did he have drugs in his hand? I have no idea. I have no idea. Witnesses by the dozen. Were Green was dead on arrival at Detroit Receiving Hospital. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. The killing sparked national debate and protests with swift action from city officials. The three-month trial of the officers involved was broadcast on national TV, just months after the cops who beat Rodney King were acquitted in Los Angeles. There has been looting and violence and arson in South Central Los Angeles. Officers Budzin and Nevers were convicted of second-degree murder with the charges later reduced to involuntary manslaughter after a wave of appeals. Budzin was released in 1999. Two years later, Nevers was allowed to serve the rest of his sentence at home after being treated for lung cancer. They didn't get what they deserved, but we did get a conviction. Sydney James was barely a teenager when Malice Green was killed. She's 40 years old today and one of the most acclaimed painters working in the city. She remembers a memorial of green painted on a building on Warren Avenue, not far from where he was killed. I probably only seen it in per person maybe once or twice in my life because I'm an Eastsider. Benny White Jr. Ethiopia Israel painted it five days after the killing in 1992. The abandoned party store he painted on was demolished seven years ago. And that was really against what the community wanted because they wanted it to stay up. It was a symbol. It was not only a symbol for that area, but it was a symbol for Detroit and also a symbol for black people because we did experience a piece of justice one time. And when I read that the mural no longer existed, I was for real crushed. 
And I decided the next day, I'm going to paint a Malice Green mural. James started a GoFundMe to raise money for the project, asking for $10,000 for materials like paint and a boom lift, plus money to pay the trio of queer-identifying artists that James enlisted to help her. That stands out in a field where few queer or female-identifying muralists get work. And James herself is often the only black female artist at street festivals where she's invited to paint at. In just three hours, James reached her GoFundMe goal, eventually raising close to $19,000. But I'm not taking any pay for this. Like, I won't be making a cent off of this. I refuse to capitalize off of any type of tragedy, especially like the murder of black people. I really just wanted to be able to do it and to do it effectively and beautifully and quickly because right now we need it. James and her team finished the mural in about a week and the finished product stands as a monument to Malice Green. He's depicted as a statue carved out of stone, holding a long scroll with the names of victims of police killings written on it. Ayanna Jones, Eric Garner, George Floyd. James completed the mural as quickly as possible in response to the wave of protests against police brutality around the country. And I feel like the, the danger of COVID made the police brutality and all the other shit that's been happening to black people more of an urgent situation. Like, no, we ain't about to be out here just like attacked by invisible invaders and invaders we walk past and see every single day. We're tired. We're over it. And this is my piece to say, though, we're tired. It stops here. In Detroit and other cities, COVID-19 has disproportionately affected African-Americans and people of color. James has felt the virus close to home, too. She says she lost a close friend in March. A week later, one of her cousins died. Over the next couple weeks, two more family members died. One of her older sisters survived COVID, but she's currently in rehab, relearning how to walk. For the first month or two, I was literally afraid to wake up. Not that I wanted to die, I just didn't know what phone call I was going to receive, what text message I was going to wake up to, a Facebook post saying somebody else I knew. I just didn't know, so I was literally afraid to wake up. It's, it's just, it's overwhelming. While Malice Green is now immortalized on a wall in Highland Park, his family is still feeling the loss of a loved one. Her having his picture put up again is like brightness. I'll always have a piece of him. It's like Detroit will always remember my uncle or my family for that matter. Even though it's unfortunate circumstances of why, but all in all, it's seeming to start to bring about change that has needed to be brought about for several years now. That's Kirsten Cheatham. She lives on the city's east side with her mother, Tracy Green, Malice's sister. We're sitting on a small patio on the side of their house. So you got some pictures down there too that you probably, uh, where the picture books at, Bob? Malice Green died 13 days before Cheatham's seventh birthday, and even at her young age, she says she remembers the blitz of media coverage following his death. Lights, cameras, and action. That's how I can pretty much sum it up. A lot of lights, ton of lights, news reporters, all the time, harassment, like, 
tabloids, the papers, everybody wanted interviews. Like my family was harassed like for a long time. But she says those experiences don't wash away the memories that she does have of her uncle. Now me being very, very young, still and all, I can remember my uncle like it was yesterday. He seemed almost as if he was like my dad. My dad was in my life until I was about like seven, eight, and then he left, but my Uncle Malice was fun. He wasn't strict or anything. He was like a great uncle. He was very goal-oriented. You know, he worked, he was a hard worker, he was a father. The average man, you know, the American man, basically, but he was great. But I guess all in all, people are stubborn. And from what I read, the reason that he got beat to death was because he didn't open his hand. I'm not saying that that's any justification for the act, but I guess being stubborn that day just wasn't a great outcome. If that's even what happened, you know. Tracy Green was 32 years old when her only brother died on November 5th, 1992. She lived closest to the receiving hospital and waited for the rest of the family to arrive. She says she'll never forget that day. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that is forgotten, but we just kind of leave it on the back burner. To... Tracy remembers the media coverage too, and the nasty lawyers and the people, she says, arriving on their doorstep, coming out of the woodwork and telling the family what to do and what to think. But Tracy says she never gave in to that overwhelming emotion of hate. My grandparents and my parents taught us never to hate anybody, you know. But I know I didn't hate, I disliked, I didn't like what had happened. I always knew that if you did wrong, God would punish punish you for it. So I thought that it was best just leave it in the Lord's hand, let him deal with it, because we are not <clears throat> the judge. And with Sidney G. James' latest mural, created with the blessing of his family, the memory of Malice Green and the love his family has for him remains alive and well for a new generation of Detroiters. For WDET, I'm Ryan Patrick Hooper. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with former Detroit City Councilwoman and CEO of Citizen Detroit, Sheila Cockrell. She'll join us to continue our conversation about policing in Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We've been talking all hour about policing in the city of Detroit, from the controversy we're all hearing right now regarding facial recognition software to the 1992 murder of Malice Green at the hands of Detroit police officers. 
Now we'd like to welcome one of the people around town who is the most knowledgeable when it comes to the modern history of policing in Detroit. Sheila Cockrell is the CEO of Citizen Detroit and a former Detroit City Council member. Sheila, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. It's uh, good to be with you. Yes, great to have you here. Uh, We just heard Ryan Patrick Cooper's report on the mural going up Mm -hmm. of Malice Green. Uh, Take us back to that November in 1992 and tell us what that case reminded us of in our city. Well, Stephen, for me, um, 1992, uh, the Malice Green murder was absolutely reminiscent of the history of this police department that I know I can certainly name going back uh, to the night to the 1967 rebellion where 43 people were killed um, by basically Detroit police and um, uh, Michigan National Guard that required because that was one of the reasons why they brought in the uh, the army um, to take control of the streets. But certainly, I think a really important part of the city's history that I think many people should examine very carefully is the stress unit, which began in uh, in 1971. Mm-hmm. It needs to be understood as being the response of the police department to having lost control of the streets uh, in the 1967 rebellion. And they put together this unit that was called Stop the Robberies and Joy Safe Streets, acronym STRESS. Uh, which was really a an entrapment unit, an undercover assassination squad that in the course of 18 months to two years killed um, 22 people, 19 of whom were African-American in the city of Detroit and injured untold others, uh, numbers of people. And in those situations where there was a survivor, a person, if there were two people involved in the encounter, they would charge the person who they didn't kill uh, with serious felonies to try to keep, you know, keep sh- shut people up or to get them um, and off the streets. So it, it, there's a history here about policing that I think it's really important to understand so that going forward, what we're looking at now, uh, the conversations about how to reimagine policing uh, in a city like Detroit, how to reallocate the budget uh, requires some really in, in sort of in-depth analysis, I think, of the history of discipline in this department. Um, you know, the, we need to understand the role of Public Act 312, the binding arbitration regulation that changes the nature of collective bargaining and how that has impacted the discipline uh, process in the city and in, in, in the police department. These are really important conversations that we need to be having that I'm, I'm, I'm sure are going to get underway here. Mm. Uh, so, as you point out, stress starts in the early 1970s, and uh, a young uh, state senator named uh, Coleman Young runs in 1973 for mayor saying he is going to end stress. Uh, he wins, and he technically dismantles uh, that part of the police department. But as I'm growing up in this city in the 1980s and learning to drive in the late 1980s, one of the first things I learn about is the big four and uh, the idea 
that there are units of the, the Detroit Police Department that you should be fearful of and that you should never try to run across. Uh, we get forward to 1992 uh, and, and Malice Green runs into two officers who are still employing these kinds of tactics. What, what did we do wrong? What, wh- why did this not go away? Well, I think part of it is the culture of policing, um, at least what I've seen in this city for my, you know, my first demonstration against police brutality was in 1960, um, 1968, after the Poor People's Campaign came to Detroit. And I was literally there when the Mounted Division wrote down on uh, people getting off the bus, buses from, on, who were on, on a pilgrimage from California to Resurrection City in, in, uh, in D.C. under Martin Luther King's leadership with the Poor People's Campaign. And there was, you know, the police rioted, and they, we, it was the Cobo Hall, one incident. The culture of policing, and I don't think this is just Detroit policing, American policing, has been about, first of all, officers protecting each other, secondly, protection of property, and thirdly, protection of people. It's exactly wrong. It's the wrong order. Um, for what the what the what people should be what the priorities should be, uh, that that sort of blue curtain of secrecy, that culture has to be fundamentally altered, and that's where civilian oversight becomes really important. Um, real oversight, for example, I think we should have an amendment to the charter that basically says that people who are former members of or, or worked for the Detroit Police Department should not be eligible to, to be elected members of the police commission. Mm. They should be people who are really from the community. We need to look at the role that the, of the uh, police officer union play in, in managing the discipline process that, that takes away from a good police chief the, uh, the autonomy that they should have to decide that this is an officer who needs retraining, needs to be off the street, needs to be, needs to leave the department, to have all of that subject to review, not by the police commission, but by court, uh, I think is something that needs to really be revisited, uh, how police dollars are spent. I mean, how why do we have all of these units where, you know, people are not on the street? Should If it's a patrol function is your major function, why don't we have a focus on community policing in the patrol division and put more police officers on the street as opposed to sitting in special bureaus and, and agencies. So I think there's a ton of tons of things that can be discussed because the police culture, um, I'm going back and I don't know if this is true anymore, but back when I was on city council, looking into these police issues, one of the things we found out is that in training, if you didn't like do enough sit-ups or push-ups or whatever, your punishment was to write the code of conduct, the ethics code of the police department repeatedly. Um, the, I mean, that needs to be something that is not that that kind of you can't make ethics subject to a um, uh, to be a punishment. So there, I think those kinds of cultural changes would be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about things like change in the police uh-huh. department and reform, uh, I guess I'm reminded of several other instances in, in Detroit history where we've talked about these things. And we are supposed to have a police commission that is overseeing police in a pretty vigilant way after the last charter uh, revision. Um, why aren't those things having the effect that we think they should? 
I've not followed um, the, you know, I, I've not followed the police commission's operations very carefully. I do know that there's a substantial number of retired officers who are on the commission. And I, to me, that's just not genuine community, you know, uh, oversight. I mean, these are folks, you know, who have um, experience, may have issues of their own with how, you know, their service was or wasn't appreciated on the department that I don't think should be a part of the consideration um, for civilian oversight. I mean, I think the the entire you know citizen complaint process should be uh, recalibrated so that the idea isn't to break a, one complaint into so many sub-issues that you end up with being able to not sustain any element of the complaint. The idea should be that we want the police are part of our community. I really think at the state level we should revisit the issue of residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there should be some requirement for people to live in the community in which they serve, particularly in this, this role where you, you know, can have life-altering, your, what you do could have life-altering impacts to your fellow citizens. Um, so I think there's this whole whole set of issues. I mean, I'd love to see, you know, a, uh, and I think one of the people in this city that we should be looking to and, and listening to on this issue is uh, Melanca um, uh, Clark from, who's at Hudson Weber, the head sure. of Hudson Weber. She was chief of staff to the Obama 21st Century Policing yes. um, Committee. I think she would be a wonderful resource and person to be central to a discussion about what is um, what is the best way forward here on, on issues ranging from facial recognition to use of force policies mm-hmm. and, you know, what are conditions of confinement really looking like uh, in Detroit, um, you know, post the, the uh, lifting of the consent agreement. Because um, for people on the street, I hear, particularly from younger people, the message I hear in 2020 from a, from a number of young people is no different than what I heard in 1968 mm. about how people are treated on the street by officers, be they black or white. Wow. Wow. My guest is Sheila Cockrell. She is the CEO of Citizen Detroit, a former Detroit City Council member. And we're talking about policing here in Detroit, the modern history of policing in Detroit and the real oppression that has taken place, uh, especially for black and brown people in the city at the hands of our police department historically. Uh, How do we change that? How do we rethink perhaps the entire idea of police and the police department. Uh, Earlier in the show, we also have been talking about facial recognition technology and how it adds to many of the problems with modern policing. We spoke with Robert Williams, the Farmington Hills man who was falsely arrested by Detroit police after uh, they used facial recognition technology to wrongly identify him as a shoplifter. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. What do you think about facial recognition technology? What do you think about policing in Detroit? What do you think about the larger instances of police surveillance that we live with right now? Uh, Are those good ideas or are those things that lead to rights violations and 
uh, mistakes like the one that Robert Williams experienced. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Gosh, I miss talking to you, Stephen. This COVID <laughs> thing has goofed up my morning listening routine. Oh, no. Um, and good morning, Sheila Cockrell. It's wonderful to uh, have you um, on this morning. I wanted to just make two brief comments. One, I think you're spot on about this idea of a residency requirement. Um, I have heard firsthand from folks in law enforcement about how when folks live in a different community, they come into a city like Detroit, they don't treat it like they're a community. They don't think of it as their community. And I think that's wrong. I think people that are trying to manage public safety for us need to think about the community as their own. And then the other point I want to make is that I think words matter, and I'd love to stop talking about policing and start talking about public safety. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, That is a really poignant uh, insight there, Terry. Uh, And thank you very much, of course, for the call uh, and the comments. Um, Sheila, react to what Terry's saying there. I mean, so the residency thing we should point out is not something that would be easy to fix. There's a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court opinion uh, that says that you cannot compel residency uh, according to the Michigan Constitution. That's a big problem. We would have yes. to get the we'd have to get a statewide vote to un, to undo that. But but this idea of the distinction between policing and and public safety i think is is really interesting and important right now yes i i i agree that that the idea should be you know that you that policing our police policing is part of the safety network for people um but i think we've got such a way to go that i'd really just like to get us to the point where we really have standards for what we expect from our policing mm. function that it, that it meets the needs of the community. I mean, stop and think about it. We're so inured to this in Detroit that we have a priority system if you call 911. And you literally know in Detroit if you don't fit the p- parameters for what's considered a priority run, nobody's coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That should, And you have other communities where you can call and say, the cat's in the tree, and somebody shows up to help you get the cat out of the tree. We need to get clarity on and understand if we – if we have this priority system, why do we have to have it, and what can be done to redistribute manpower so that there is enough policing capacity to meet the needs of every shift for every part of the city? Uh, to me, that's a really important issue. We also need to understand, in terms of public safety, all of this network of other policing entities now that never used to exist. We have private policing. We have school policing. We have, um, you know, U.S. Border Patrol police. We have all of these entities who all provide policing functions. Mm-hmm. There needs to be real clarity on who has what kind of jurisdiction where and what is the connection and interface between those entities and the, the you know, Detroit Police Department and the Wayne County Sheriff. And I think that there's, you know, there's a lack of transparency that uh, we would all benefit from understanding, you know, what are what are the connections, what are the authorities, um, and and how do they how, how do they interface with each other? Mm, yeah. Uh, again, Terry, thanks very much for the call and the comments. 
Let's go to Adam in Detroit. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'm a 46-year-old black man in, in, in Detroit, and and I've seen. I remember the um, the Malice Green situation and all mm-hmm. that. But what I've come to see over 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 the last say 10 to 15 years that the, the Detroit police they didn't come a long way as far <laughs> as you know not being overzealous and not being too quick to just throw you in cuffs. You know, I, I I I spent a little time in prison. It was my fault. I you know I did the crime for I did the time, mm. but. Personally, I I don't think that I, I think that Detroit police officers. I mean, they, I think they they doing okay by the community. Look at our riots, and it, our riots aren't like the other you know like other cities. Yeah, I, I I really appreciate your call and and your perspective, Adam. I mean, I think there for a lot of us who've lived here, you know, most of our lives or all of our lives, it is different, and we probably don't don't appreciate the comparison, I think, between what goes on here and other places. And I think when we talk about uh, the frustrations we have with police, uh, we are talking in absolute terms about the things that we expect from those who are, uh, you know, who are charged with keeping us safe. But as you point out, if you compare what goes on here to some other places, there are some some points of progress that uh, that are important to note. Sheila? Uh, yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I mean, I think the Neighborhood Police Officers uh, Program is an excellent one. And, and, and part, of, part of what has changed, I've, I, I believe in this police culture, is there's more respect for officers who are doing the, the, who are the neighborhood police officers, who are part of the community policing approach and strategy as opposed to the hardcore you know, we're going to, like, keep control of the, you know, the, the situation-type uh, policing, that that, that, is a, that is a market improvement and that, there are, that the officers I know who are part of the, the community policing, the neighborhood policing program, they're, they're the, they are, to, to Terry's point earlier, these are the officers in this department who are very much a part of public, seeing themselves as part of the public safety uh, infrastructure, and many of them do a phenomenal job. Um, but the overall culture is still one that uh, I think needs, um, you know, closer observation, closer attention than, than we've been giving it. Mm. Okay, Sheila Cockrell, CEO of Citizen Detroit, former Detroit City Councilwoman. It is always great to have you here, sharing your deep knowledge of uh, policing history in the city with our listeners. Thanks for coming by. My pleasure, Stephen. All right, that's going to do it for me this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will too. We're going to have Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan and Senator Debbie Stabenow join the show. Special thanks to Rowan Niamisto, who has been running the board for us all week, while Matthew Trevethan got some much-deserved time off. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.